welcome to our new series on the Pakistani Couch. Our first series will be exploring and analysing the book series written by the British author Roald Dahl. I'm your co-host, Dr. Farah Khalid, and I am a consultant counselling psychologist and assistant professor in clinical psychology. I have a private practice based in Islamabad and I have around 20 years of experience in clinical work and in providing therapy. Whilst I've specialised in humanistic psychoanalytic psychotherapies, I also weave in cognitive behavioural therapeutic methods as well in my work. And you can learn much more about me in the episode notes, so please feel free to pop in there and learn more about me and my background. I provide teaching, training, supervision for clinical psychology trainees, graduate psychologists, therapists and counsellors. And whilst in my work so far, I have worked with a, a broad range of mental health difficulties and issues. My particular specialism is rooted in what we know as personality problems or um, a difficulty in the sense of self and another term that we use is personality disorders or pathology of the self so that's where my specialism is rooted in. I am hoping to draw on my professional insights so far in the 20 years that I've been practicing and I'd also like to bring in my insights personally being a mother as well so in each episode I'm hoping to sprinkle in some tips for parenting or improving family life so for those of you listeners out there who are parents or are currently in conception or are planning to conceive I really hope that you will benefit from hearing about some of those tips and you'll be hearing me have a conversation with my co-host her name is Fatima Hussain and she is a psychodynamic psychotherapist, also based in Islamabad. She works with a diverse population and is curious about the intersection between mental health and institutional power. She feels very passionately about making therapy accessible and culturally appropriate to the Pakistani context. What I find really valuable in my work is I consider it to be a backstage pass into the human condition and dilemma and I feel really honoured that I'm allowed to share this journey with each of the people that come to see me. They allow me to witness their struggles and they give me permission to help them and I feel very privileged for that opportunity and that's why I'm very, very passionate about my work. We hope that our series will give you some points to ponder, nuggets of wisdom, and more importantly, a deep psychological perspective on everyday issues through the lens of Roald Dahl. We would love you to write into us, especially those listeners who are able to remember their dreams, who are curious about their unconscious life and would like to know more. We would want you to write into us and we can provide you with our psychological insights and our dream interpretations. Please remember that any dream material that you do send us or any other personal content will be kept strictly confidential and it will be anonymized. Apart from that, you can write to us with your comments and any feedback. We'd be delighted to hear from you. You can e- either email us 
on the Pakistani couch at gmail.com or you can tweet us at on the pack couch. We really hope that you enjoy our series. Okay, so Fatima, this book, um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, is um, more lengthy than the last one. It's much more than the fantastic Mr. Fox, and it's one of the popular ones, actually, so we're really looking forward to discussing it together today. Um, can you give us a summary of what the story's about? Sure. Um, and yes, I do think this is one of the most popular books by Roald Dahl because it made its way into popular culture through the 1979 movie, and then there was a remake by Tim Burton more recently, 2005, if I'm not wrong, possibly mm-hmm. a little later. Uh, but also in, in a very real way where there was Wonka candy and um, there was a whole uh, line of candy that was uh, launched alongside the first movie and then later bought by Nestle and uh, it's gone out of business now but they produced many different chocolate uh, products and confectioneries for many years actually. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be familiar with this story but I, I'll just give a brief overview of what Um, happens in this book. So essentially this is a story of a young boy named Charlie and he lives with his parents and both sets of grandparents. So he has four grandparents who he lives with. Um, They live near a chocolate factory and his father works in a toothpaste factory. And we know from the beginning of the book that they live essentially in poverty. You know, there's not enough to eat, the house is cold and he's really uh, uh, perhaps not able to afford the very, you know, very luxurious things or even basic things are things that are difficult for the family to afford because the father is the only one who earns. Um, And so he, the grandparents are also a very important part in this story and they have a very nice relationship with uh, Charlie and they're always telling him marvelous things about Willy Wonka, which is the man who runs a chocolate factory that Charlie and his family live very close to. And so he they, he's told all these stories and he passes by the chocolate factory and he can smell the chocolate, but the sad reality of his life is that he can only afford one chocolate bar a year, which he gets on his birthday. And so the you know he hears all of these wonderful stories about what the what Willy Wonka makes in his chocolate factory these exciting chocolates and flavors but and he really looks forward to that one bar of chocolate a year. Um, one day his father tells him that it's been announced that five children get access and a lifetime supply of chocolate to the cho- the chocolate factory run by Willy Wonka. So Willy Wonka after many years of being a recluse has decided to let five children in and how he decides who these five children are going to be is by randomly putting five golden tickets in Wonka candy bars. So obviously it's a really exciting thing for everybody and you know everybody wants to see the factory. Nobody's been inside it for many years. Um, and so Charlie starts to you know he has this we don't know explicitly he never says explicitly but there's kind of this hope that he will get uh he will be one of those lucky five children so as the story goes on we find out about the other children who discover the the ticket there's augustus gloop there's baruka salt there's violet 
there's Mike TV and Charlie, which we find out later in the story, is the is the, gets the fifth ticket. Mm-hmm. Charlie Bucket. Charlie Bucket. That's his full name. Um, so what that means is that he gets access to the chocolate factory and that's where a large part of the book is set and this is, there's this wonderful factory and they're you know um, having all these adventures as they go through it and one by one the children so the children are accompanied by their parents and Charlie is accompanied by his grandfather and they have these adventures as they go in um, and he's never seen anything like that before he's never had access to chocolate in that excess or anything like that so gradually, the one by one, we'll talk more about these children and what their personalities are like uh, as we go on. But what happens is that one by one, these children start are kind of, um, I don't want to use the word eliminated, but they are removed <laughs> from the, the story. Um, and we'll find out later how. Um, and the last remaining person is Charlie. And in the end, Willy Wonka reveals to him that he has decided to make Charlie the heir to his factory and his family's taken out of poverty and uh, they move in to live in the, the factory where Willy Wonka will be teaching Charlie the you know tricks of the trade and then setting um, him up to take over after he's dead. So um, that's kind of what happens in the story. They're obviously the, the exciting bits are the adventures that happen in the chocolate factory and Willy Wonka is this eccentric character. He has an army of Oompa Loompas that works for him in the factory. We'll also go on to talk about that, uh, perhaps in our next episode in more detail. Um, so yeah, that's that's what the story is about, Dr. Faram. Thank you, thank you. That was an elaborate summary. <laughs> but it is it is a long story, and you yeah. know, so that it deserved mm-hmm. uh, your attention on that. So um, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the setting and Roald Dahl and how that connects to um, the story in itself. Uh, we also we know that Roald Dahl kind of lived through the rise of three very big chocolate empires, right? Mm-hmm. So there's Cadbury, there's Hershey, and Mars. All of these three uh, companies kind of came into being in the span of 100 years. So it's not surprising that it captured his imagination in a way that um, became... Uh, a book that is a bestseller and also interestingly the reason that the first movie came out was that the director's daughter read the book and she was so um, interested that she asked her father to make a uh, a movie yeah I forget who the director was but it's his daughter who prompted Mm -hmm. that Um, so it's captured the imagination of children also for many many years Mm -hmm. Um, what I did find was that the inspiration for uh, for Roald Dahl behind the this chocolate factory um, seems to stem from his childhood. When he was a young schoolboy in Britain, uh, Cadbury, which is one of the three big um, chocolate companies, uh, would send out their latest and greatest concoctions to school children for them to sample mm-hmm. and for them to give feedback. So these early memories seem to have stuck with him and that eventually, I'm assuming, led him to dream up and write this uh, children's book. And he's made quite a legacy for himself. It turned into, you know, multiple film adaptations, a sequel novel, a video game, and even a Broadway musical. Oh. Mm-hmm. And, and a line of chocolates. We do know that. Oh, so the yes. Wonka Kennedy. Yeah. 
So I, I know, Dr. Farah, that um, you've approached, so and we've talked about in the summary, and I didn't go into too much detail then, but there are five children who get the ticket, right? Four, excluding Charlie. And they all have their peculiar kind of traits and, and ways of behavior. And I know that you've approached these behaviors through, you know, the through Catholic thought. And um, I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. In terms of um, Catholicism, uh, I was wondering about uh, sins and cardinal sins. Um, and it seems like Roald Dahl has uh, perhaps depicted Catholic teaching um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an entertained way, I think, through this story. So it's almost like I feel Roald Dahl is, is teaching some very important lessons to children through fantasy of this wonderful fantasy land and this chocolate factory mm -hmm. and through entertaining and really capturing children's attention through the story mm -hmm. um, so one of the cardinal sins um, which listeners might know is gluttony yeah. I, I know we didn't say very much about who the I know you have more to say Dr. Farah but I thought maybe I could quickly jump in here to say that uh, for those who haven't read the book Augustus Gloop is, um, is known to be really greedy he is really, he eats a lot and he's um, very, that's how he finds the chocolate bar because he, the, the golden ticket, because he eats a lot of chocolate bars. And Violet has, um, she chews gum all the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So she has a gum addiction. Um, that might be one way to look at it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Ba back to you, Dr. Farah. Mm -hmm. I just thought I'd jump in to say that. Yes, no, that's very helpful. Thank you. So, so, um, so these two children really stood out in terms of, um, uh, one of the cardinal sins, which is gluttony, um, and as you you know you've described that both of them have a certain type of addiction, and and I think both of them we could I would sort of see as a psychoanalyst as as having oral tendencies, so mm -hmm. it, it's actually overeating, and if we look at uh, the etymology, uh, because I love looking at the root word root words of certain you know words like the history of the word mm. so if we have a look at um, gluttony then it's Latin for gula mm. and glutine and that actually means to gulp down and swallow mm -hmm. so that makes sense because Violet Violet is chewing she's using her mouth so it, it is it is an oral process although she doesn't um, swallow, swallow it as such I think she chews and chews and makes it quite old doesn't mm -hmm. she yes um, for three months, she's been chewing that bit, oh. bit of chewing gum, yes. Oh, and when she's not, then she ducks, sticks it behind her ear mm -hmm. and then eats it again. <laughs> and Augustus Gloop, um, he, um, he gulps down chocolate, so he actually drinks and eats lot, you know, chocolate until, uh, you know, until he's sick. Mm -hmm. um, so so it's, it's, it's not just, um, for me, it's not just looking at, um, you know, that this is being um, overeating. It's it's actually like you said. It does touch on greed. Um, but there are there are two kind of quotes that really stood out in the book in terms of um, what Roald Dahl is trying to teach uh, these two. You know, children. That look at these two children. They're overeating, and it's the manner in which they're eating as well. Um, and so one of the quotes is where an Oompa Loompa mm -hmm. is singing mm -hmm. um, and the Oompa Loompa is um, saying, 
this is in terms of uh, this is in terms of Augustus and Violet. Mm -hmm. How long could we allow this beast to gorge and guzzle, feed and feast? So this is an extract from one of the songs, and they're kind of sort of like I guess they are taking like they are taking the mick really. They mm -hmm. are they are you know making fun mm -hmm. of children, but, and they're doing it to kind of teach a lesson really. Mm -hmm. Um. So in terms of Catholicism, gluttony. Gluttony is one of the cardinal sins, okay? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm going to also weave in some Islamic perspective in here as well because I think it's not just it's not just afforded a place in the Bible, um, in, you know, in, in Bible script, but it's also, I think, in Islamic script mm -hmm. as well. In, in, and so I'm going to just read out a little bit um, where in... In Christian thought, in Catholicism, it says, you know, that one must abstain from food or, you know, sort of, you know, have enough control mm. to not overeat and not to, you know, be, be wary of what you're eating mm -hmm. because diseases come up and, you know, your, your stomach gets irritated mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And some of our listeners out there actually might have already experienced um, some, you know, like acid problems, acid reflux, gastrointestinal reflux. It's very, very common, mm -hmm. particularly in women. It's so common in women because of, you know, issues of anxiety. And we all know, I think we as a species, not one of us can put our hands up and say we've never overeaten. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think we're all guilty of that and we need to be honest about it. But then I see it on a spectrum, and I think we, we see more of it in mental health disorders and conditions. Mm -hmm. So we see it in, you know, uh, in binge eating problems, and even in certain personality, even in certain personality, you know, disorders such as borderline mm -hmm. personality, because of the nature of that um, personality, is that there is less sort of impulse control mm -hmm. and things like that. And I also think that you know looking at it from a social perspective so especially in pakistani context so much of our interactions are shaped by food mm -hmm. right so food is the way mothers often express their love you know they'll cook for you or they that's the way they show how to they're, they're programmed to show uh, care and mm -hmm. nurturing mm -hmm. um, and when people meet and socialize food is a big part of that process also when you have guests over Food is a big part of that process. So food is kind of woven into our cultural fabric in a way that is very fundamental to a lot of our interactions and relationships. Mm. Um, when somebody dies, you send over food. Mm. Uh, when you're celebrating, you eat. Uh, when you're mourning, you eat. So mm. that, and even in more Western kind of thought, comfort eating, that, that thought is quite present. But I do think that, especially in, in our culture and other sort of cultures in the global south, uh, that's a very big theme of how a lot of our emotions and a lot of the ways that we live our lives are linked to food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's an important aspect. Um, and, and, and then, you know, if we, if we weave in religion, I mean, the main dominant religion of, of Islam here in this context, uh, or the official religion of, of the country mm -hmm. and the nation. So um, there's, a, there's a passage that I've extracted, which listeners might be aware of, but um, it goes like this. Um, the son of Adam does not fill any vessel worse than his stomach. It is sufficient for the son of Adam to eat a few mouthfuls 
to keep him going. If he must do that, then let him fill one third with food, one third with water, and one third with air. Mm. And I found it really interesting when I was doing the research on this as well, that even in Catholicism, um, the similarity between Islamic perspective and any of the major traditions, you know, Judeo-Christian um, um, uh, religions and, you know, Islamic religions, the Abrahamic religions, mm -hmm. all of them in some shape or form touch on, you know, this is the best way or this is one of the good ways of living life. Mm -hmm. Basically, that's how I personally view religious scripts mm -hmm. and texts. It's, it's a way of it's a guide to life almost. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that it's written in a certain context, mm -hmm. of course, um, but but it's really interesting when I came across that to, if somebody sinned through gluttony, mm -hmm. so these children have essentially mm -hmm. sinned with gluttony, to overcome it is actually fasting. Mm -hmm. And we know we have the month of... Ramzan. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's something about um, food, but overindulgence being bad. Right? So it's not, there's something about moderation also that's woven mm. into all of these thoughts where mm. it's good for you and it's nurturing. Something is good for you to an extent, but beyond that, it is, it's bringing harm to you and your body. Mm. Um, and I know we'll say a little bit more about that as we go on. Mm -hmm. But yeah. yeah. And uh, another sin um, as well, um, through you know the lens of Catholicism, is Mike TV. So Mike TV is somebody who. Um, is addicted to TV and he just kind of watches it all day every day his parents let him yeah. let him do that um, he's the fourth child and he's the, he's the child who discovers the fourth golden ticket um, and he um, is just addicted to watching TV and in the in the Tim Burton uh, film he actually plays a lot of video games and he uh, this it's not in the book but it's in the in the movie where he kind of he's also very smart because he says that oh it, I just had to figure out what candy bar it was in because he did some mathematics and he figures that out mm. so he's also he's he's smart but he's very like preoccupied with mm. um, television mm -hmm. and we learn about him and and we also learn about Roldal's kind of thoughts on. Uh, TV and, and perhaps this is when it was becoming more of a thing in households uh, it was written around the same time mm -hmm. uh, but the Oompa Loompas when Mike TV um, is kind of um, uh, turned into a little person when he he disappears he disappears and then he comes back as much as a much shorter version of himself so they, they say that um, in, a, in almost every house we've been, we've watched them gaping at the screen. They loll and slop and lounge about and stare until their eyes pop out. And later they say, they sit and stare and stare and sit until they're hypnotized by it. So this is part of a bigger song, but these bits stood out to me. And mm. I don't know, Dr. Fair, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if we have a look at the etymology again uh, about the word slop, where does it come from? So it comes from Middle English mm -hmm. um, of slough, and slough actually means slow. So being slow, being sluggish, being lazy. And also I was thinking sloth as an animal. Mm -hmm. That has a symbolism, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. yes. wonder which one came first, the animal or the, or the word. Um, <laughs> I think the animal, but in particular, I thought of Sid from Ice Age. Oh, yeah. 
I think listeners out there, or particularly yeah. those with children, you must know Sid is just, I find him so funny <laughs> in the Ice Age. Um, but he's, he's a sloth, mm. yeah. And uh, a lot of, he portrays a lot of sloth-like mm. qualities. Um, but yeah, so, so slow, uh, sloth is a slow-moving <coughs> mammal. Um, and so, so we can imagine, we can imagine when children are addicted to TVs or video games or any form of digital technology, iPads these yeah. days, phones, I mean children now, quite like a lot of younger children now, I mean when I grew up it was not, we didn't have mobile phones, mm -hmm. but eight, I think even eight, nine year olds now mm -hmm. have got their own mobile phones, yeah. so the world is certainly changing. And it's, it's not, like, even when I grew up, they were, I, I'm very lucky to have had that window in my at least early teens where we didn't have um, access to mobiles in the same way that we do today and access to social media in the same way because I think it has really changed the way we relate to each other and the way we relate mm -hmm. to ourselves. Children, very, you know, very young children, a few months old, a few days old, now are uh, put in front of a TV screen uh, to keep them busy or entertained. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know what feelings you have about that, Dr. Faraz, as a parent. Oh, I have very strong <laughs> feelings indeed, and I shall talk more about it as we go on. Yes, I do, definitely. Yeah. So, um, so yes, I, I think, um, let, let's talk a little bit about um, the research, I think, because this will give listeners out there, um, you'll, you'll kind of get to know, you know, that this is research-based, there's a science behind it, um, and then we'll talk a little, bit, a little bit about the challenges that parents particularly have, especially in the South Asian context, um, you know, where, uh, or in societies where it's expected or it's more or less the norm, where there is more of a gender disparity between males and females, and females usually work from, uh, you know, um, they're usually domestic, um, you know, they, they do domestic work, so they look after the children and that's their role um, here, for example, in this context in society. Um, and, and so here we have a lot more of a gender polarisation, although I do think that it's with the new generation and perhaps the current generation, a bit younger perhaps, it's actually becoming closer together, male, male and female disparity is not so great as in previous generations. But, but certainly we see that mothers then are left with the, with the responsibility of bringing up children, childcare, and the males you know, kind of are the breadwinners and they, they earn money. So, so I, I do want to talk a little bit, I don't want to neglect the, that, that parents and mothers, mothers particularly, or you know, um, um, or whoever is is entrusted, you know, with the care of a child, whether it's a house attendant, a maid, mm -hmm. um, what the challenges are actually, and why people do resort to sticking the child in front of a mm -hmm. TV. Mm -hmm. But before I talk about that, um, I, I'd like everybody to know though that you know, in 1999, so this is, well, this is twenty-three years ago. ago. <laughs> Thank you for the maths. <laughs> so yeah, twenty-three years ago, mm -hmm. the American Academy of Pediatrics, and you can go on, listeners, go and check, go and check me up on this. You know, is that the American Academy of Pediatrics issued a policy statement um, about you know media use in children, and it's backed by scientific um, evidence is that they were kind of advising families, like a real statement to say, look, you know, um, children who are under the age of two, um, so, you know, infants and toddlers who are 
below the age of around two. It doesn't have to be exactly on their second birthday, you know, and be so mm. prescriptive and, and pedantic, but around about two, no digital or media use or any technology. And um, I'll say a bit more about why, why they've done that. And I, I, I fully attest to that. I agree with that because I did that myself as a, as a mum mm -hmm. um, with, with my son. And who's to say that that helped or not? But I can see a difference with, um, you know, I mean, now he does, you know, he plays Minecraft mm -hmm. and almost he's almost addicted to mm -hmm. Minecraft mm -hmm. now. But, mm -hmm. but I, 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 I did make a real effort to make sure that there was no digital use. And if I did have the TV on in the background for lullabies or nursery rhymes, that I made sure he wasn't looking at directly mm -hmm. at the screen mm -hmm. so that he could still hear mm -hmm. music, but he wasn't actually fixated because that has a different process in the brain mm -hmm. and it has a different effect on the, you know, the neurochemicals mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. brain pathways. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully I've, I've done, you know, a, a healthy thing, but you know. <laughs> I'm sure you have. <laughs> um, so if we talk a little bit about um, the prevalence, um, approximately 70% of 10 to 14 year olds have at least one other, um, uh, so this is in a sample of, uh, you know, in autism, mm -hmm. in autistic or people with autism, um, or on the autistic spectrum, um, is that 70% uh, of 10 to 14 year olds have at least one other mental health condition and 41% have two or more. Mm -hmm. So this is in a sample of, of children who've been exposed to TV okay. yeah, and, okay. and videos uh, from an early age, mm -hmm. very early age. Do we know what kind of other uh, mental health issues they're having? Uh, so usually, usually we, we see references to anxiety is mm -hmm. a really big correlation um, because of the um, you know the, the well we know one of the hallmarks of um autistic spectrum disorders is the 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 struggle with managing um uncertainty so they need to have very concrete routines they don't like to have changes um from a day-to-day -day basis it, again it depends if the child is more on the severe end or moderate to severe end of autism then you know it's almost like even if, if the let's say the mums changed the plan for the day and they were supposed to go to the grandparents' house, mm -hmm. but now they're not, the grandparents are not in or something and they have to go and do some other outing, like go to a museum or mm -hmm. something. Um, uh, somebody with autism would really be d very distressed mm -hmm. about that compared to a neurotypical mm -hmm. child. Mm -hmm. So things like that, it depends on how mild or mm -hmm. severe it is. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I think the anxiety, you see, some a lot of people are diagnosed with anxiety as children growing up or even early adulthood, like 18, 19, or, and they're diagnosed with ADHD or they're diagnosed with uh, depression. But for me, those are just isolated because, of the look, because the clinician is looking through the lens of the symptom that's present, presenting mm -hmm. now clinically. Mm -hmm. But if you have a look, I often in my experience, I've found... Um, that, that those people, um, even adults who come to see us in practice, when they talk about struggling with anxiety or mm -hmm. that there was a question of ADHD growing up, mm -hmm. even if they hadn't had the official kind of mm -hmm. diagnosis, mm -hmm. but often I will find that there is more a personality problem mm -hmm. which has not been detected mm -hmm. because it's so complex, it's so hard to, to pick that up. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, and I think another episode I did mention that 
I actually don't agree with ADHD and autism. I do actually think it's a personality problem. Yeah, but yeah, yeah but those labels help. Mm-hmm. You know, help us. Okay, and and would you say that uh, again? Maybe we're going off topic here, but I'm mm-hmm. asking because I'm curious. Would you say that these are attachment difficulties or? Uh, I know there's this debate around attachment theory, mm-hmm. the way that we know it, mm-hmm. and, and psychodynamic thought being mm-hmm. compatible or not. Mm-hmm. Where do you kind of stand on that? Um, well, I, I like to use, even when I, when I, I teach, mm-hmm. so when, when I teach students or therapists um, it, and, and psychologists, is whenever I teach about personality, I always make a point to say, look, you know, personality if you just even though it's such a complex phenomenon and by all means i don't want to simplify it and do not do justice to it mm. but but in the efforts of teaching mm. personality always remember that it's a tool mm. it's an adaptation mm. everybody all these different personalities we have within us we all have different ego adaptations we all have different strengths and weaknesses mm. and essentially we're, we're all a different bundle of character you know we're made up of different traits mm. but but personality is actually how we've adapted to our parents how we've adapted to our family home environment mm-hmm. growing up so if you if you take that definition and if it resonates with you that definition that personality all it is basically is a tool in how, on how to live mm-hmm. it, it's how you're interacting with your environment mm-hmm. whether you're inward or you're more introverted or you're more extroverted mm-hmm. and that's only one model this is Jung's model of personality mm-hmm. and you know that's only that's the trait based model of personality but mm-hmm. it's much more complex than that the way mm-hmm. that I see personality mm-hmm. so if you look at it from that view that it's it's how you've adapted how you've needed to get your needs met from your parents mm-hmm. to feel loved mm-hmm. to feel cared for mm-hmm. how you've avoided the pain the psychological pain mm-hmm. of separation mm-hmm. you know growing up how you've managed school environment how you've managed bullying from friends mm-hmm. lots of things and it's so how it's how you've adapted Pediatrics, which was uh, um, there's a study that's been published in August last year, so mm-hmm. it's very new. Mm-hmm. It's it's not been a year yet, um, and they did a study on um, this. This will speak, I think, a lot. Even though it, even though we, I'm not saying as a psychologist that there is a um, causal effect. So it's not like okay. So if a mum out there who's listening to this right now mm-hmm. is actually doing that, is is you know. Um, using TV to, for distraction, or, or maybe she's got chores. To, you've got chores to do, and you're getting your children or child to sit in front of a TV to play a video game or to watch something, mm. or something like that. Um, you know, don't panic. It, but but you know, there is some there is some evidence to suggest that there is a link. So we're not saying that that's going to inevitably cause autism or mm. cause ADHD in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it probably, I would say, increase the risk, mm-hmm. or it, it, and you don't want to take the risk. You know, you'd rather not as a parent. Mm-hmm. So, um, so this child, this sample of children, there were sixty five um, children with autism, and they actually compared that with a with a control group. Um, so, in scientific speak, we say control group because we need to measure this with another. You know, we have to compare it with children without autism. So we, we call it a control group. Um, and they kind of had boys and girls as well in both samples. And what they found um, was that 
the, 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 the ASD group, so the group um, with autism, were actually exposed to TV and media at an earlier age compared to those without autism. Mm. So it's like the diagnostic group with mm -hmm. those with diagnosis of autism um, were exposed um, earlier than mm. the other group. And um, I mean, I know the sample's rather small because it's 65, but the reason why I really took to this was because um, India and Pakistan being quite, you know, I mean, there are lots of similarities in the social structures. And I would imagine that, you know, this sample actually went across all social classes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they, they kind of incorporated parents of working class, but also middle class. Mm -hmm. And there'll be different situations for each family, of course. You know, some people might not have house help mm -hmm. or, or, you know, nannies to come and look after children. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what the individual circumstances are mm -hmm. of these people. But, but if we be very specific, and this is to help parents out there or anybody who's, you know, conceiving, trying to conceive or hoping to be a parent in the future, mm -hmm. is um, what, they, what they classified was that um, if children spent less than two hours a day quality time with the mother, so like no, no digital media, no technology, just kind of quality time, perhaps reading, singing together, just the mother and the child, less than two hours a day and more than four hours a day of screen time. So remember that formula, it's a bit like a formula, right? So more than four hours in a day, and you can you can all schedule this parents out there, you can make your own timetable of childcare and how you wanna, you know, structure. You can kind of remember the formula that over four hours of screen time and then less than two hours of quality time with your child, and um, that's actually the, the the risk factor, and that's what they found in the uh, in the children with autism. So I would say just remember that formula. Actually, it would be really helpful. So just make sure that if you are exposing your child who's less than two, um, to any kind of you know um, to any any um, screen time or anything like that, then just uh, just just make sure you know it would do wonders actually. Just make sure that if you can in any way is less than four hours, perhaps maybe an hour if you can't help it and you don't have any other childcare or, you know, any other practical um, help. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then another study, uh, which actually, um, you know, I would like to speak about because this sample was actually 3,227 children. So, so this is actually Much quite... Much bigger sample. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and in this study, this was done in Switzerland, and this again was published last year in 2021. And they compared high TV exposure, which, which was more than two hours a day, compared to low TV exposure, which is less than 40 minutes per day. Mm -hmm. And they found that the, the children that had um, less than 40 minutes per day actually had a greater development of receptive language so this is this is what what the authors were doing here where they were looking at language expression and you know mm -hmm. um, and compared to compared to high TV so high TVs over two hours a day and what they found really interestingly was the children with the more TV exposure actually had 1.3 times faster development of expressive language, mm. but they didn't have much development of 
receptive mm. language. So it's kind of like toss the coin parents yes. out there. Do you want your child to be receptive or expressive? Yeah, yeah. What what yeah. do you think about? What comes to mind when you think of receptive? Well, I think like I'm, I'm assuming well because a TV or a screen existing, it's it's talking at you, right? Like it's teaching you how to express or being expressive in that way, but or helping you find the vocabulary to say things. But a receptive thing is perhaps something that happens more in relationship. Um, I would assume that yeah. it's the back and forth, right? Like it's not just being talked at. Um, it's more of a back and forth thing. Yeah. That's a skill that perhaps develops more efficiently with relationships. I think so, Fatima. I think you've just hit the nail on the head there. You have because because with receptive language, you've got to be able to hear and understand the words of the other person when you're communicating with the other person. And we know that in autism, that's one of the hallmarks mm. is, is the social recipro yeah. reciprocation. Mm. Um, and understanding social cues. Absolutely. It just For me, it just made a lot of sense, this research. And we've, this research is not new. Mm. I mean, it's developing every year and we're getting better at, at improving the way that we're researching. Mm. But it's just for parents and listeners out there to make your own, come to your own conclusions, come to your own thoughts about this have a look at the research yourself mm. um, but just uh, just one example of the receptive language is a bit like this um, if I was to say to you Fatima um, a big black cat on a tiny wet mat mm. or a cat on a mat mm. um, and if or if I had said I mean what, what are your thoughts about that compared to if I say mat on a cat I only remember the first thing you said, a big black cat on a wet mat. Yeah. I, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to make And um, Which one makes more sense to you, mat on a cat or cat on a mat? Cat on a mat. Because? Because it makes sense. I think I can't explain why. <laughs> no, we usually can't explain. Mm. And it's because it's because we've seen, mm. we, we, it's because we've seen usually, mm. either on TV or in real, real life, right? We mm. usually see... We, we never usually see a mat on a cat, do yeah, we? Yeah. Do, do, do you get mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. So somebody with autism would actually say mat on a cat ah. rather than cat on a mat. Okay. Okay. I did not know that. That's interesting. Mm. And this is what they picked up on this study here mm. where, the, you know, the, the receptive language. Do you want your child to be better at receptive language? Mm. And this group of children were actually 1.4 times better than the autism group mm. in receptive language. Mm. And this is not devaluing expressive language either, mm. of course. And, you know, people with autism usually, um, have you heard of echocalia? Echolia? Oh, I have it sounds familiar but I can't remember why uh, so that's a condition that we usually see in children with autism where they copy and parrot what mm. they're saying but they don't really they just know how to repeat what you're saying mm. but they don't actually have much comprehension of the mm -hmm. yeah so so expression is important mm. but recept reception is also equally important yeah no that makes sense why that study resonated with you and um, I can definitely see again like that going back to your point about Nobody's saying that, or, and I don't think the research implies that this amount of screen time means your child's going to be autistic. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying that this is a trend that was uh, observed and it might, there might be risks attached to mm -hmm. greater screen time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I know there's a third 
um, character in the book that we would like to talk about and that's uh, Baruch Assault. Mm-hmm. She's an interesting character and I think very relatable in the sense that we've all, we all known somebody like her at some point, right? Like she's not, she's more three-dimensional than the other characters mm-hmm. I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's this spoiled um, young child who gets everything she wants and her, fa- and her father and mother both accompany her to the, the chocolate factory and every, with every room and with every fascinating thing that captures her attention, the only way she knows how to be with it is by possessing it. And, and her only way of uh, relating with these things is possession. So perhaps the, the cardinal sin that aligns with um, is, is greed, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe that's not the entirety of what's happening here with Dr. Farah. Mm. Well, I want to extract one word you used. You said possession, mm. which is so interesting because when you have a look at the definition of greed, mm. um, well, first the origins, it comes from grydig. Mm. Grydig is Old English for greedy, mm. and it means um, eager to obtain. Mm-hmm. Um, and another definition is where, you know, possession of all the goodness that can be extracted from the object. Mm. And it's interesting you mentioned that she just wants to possess everything and mm. take it all in. Mm. She just wants, wants, wants. Yeah, and I think that that's the reason that that word kind of came to me was because I've been thinking of it more in terms of this capitalist way of living that we have where every good, you know, beauty must be possessed. So whether it's a, a piece of art, it's almost like we have to own it to, for it to bring us pleasure or you know, whatever it is. So I've been thinking of it in different uh, contexts, but that ability to just find pleasure in something without possessing it seems to be something that comes with pain, pain and an effort, and it's active work. It's not, it's something that happens much later in life, perhaps. I would think so. I, I would say so. And I think it comes, like you're saying, later mm-hmm. because we become more conscious of, uh, and maybe because we have to let go of our ego sometimes in you know, midlife, post-midlife. We've done what we needed to do in our professions, in our love lives, in whatever Mm. areas of life. Mm. But um, you're saying about the capitalist society, I think that holds Mm. a lot of resonance because, and it makes a lot of sense because um, it's almost like the need to possess beauty uh, is to fill a void inside, a void which, so if one doesn't feel beautiful, or if Mm. one, you know, feels inadequate, not good enough. All these issues we've already mentioned in, in our episodes, you know, about narcissism mm-hmm. and it's all on a spectrum. We all have a degree of narcissism, but mm-hmm. where it becomes pathological and where it becomes toxic or unhealthy or disordered. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think the need to probably collectively on it as a species, maybe what you're saying also is mm-hmm. that it's, you know, um, some you know we, we have to extract something from our environment mm. and get it inside us either physically or mentally you know in our self-image even just yeah. mentally yeah yes that is that is what i meant but you put it in much better words <laughs> so baruka baruka salt so she just wants wants and i i, I actually thought about this i think you're right that she is more three-dimensional and mm. um, but it's also closely tied to envy and, and, you know, like the need to get something or possess something or want something, whether it's a person mm-hmm. or an object, something that you want, a, a car, a property, um, could be anything even small uh, for ladies out there. It could be a pair of shoes <laughs> in the mall. 
but you know, like it's very closely tied to MV. So perhaps our task is to how do we manage our longing and our desire? Because we all have desires. Mm. Charlie Bucket in the story has a desire. He has a desire to eat more chocolate mm. and to have food, mm. have better food, because mm. all his family can afford is soup. I think. Yeah, cabbage soup. Mm. Just, just a quick request, Dr. Farah, if you could take a, just a couple of minutes to, uh, I know you've done this in the past, but help us, um, help us distinguish envy and jealousy. Just that clarification might be helpful going into this discussion. Mm -hmm. So jealousy always, always involves um, three objects or people, let's say. And envy always involves two people. So jealousy, just think of jealousy as a triangle. It, it, it's always triadic. It's always three. Or it could be more as well, but the very basic element of jealousy. Mm -hmm. So one example is, you know, um, you have a partner and the partner uh, uh, has a friend. The friend might be the third point in the triangle where it would be very natural for one to feel a sense of threat if your partner's showing interest or if, um, spending more time. It doesn't have to be necessarily sexual or romantic, but even just spending more time with somebody else or, you know, and, and I've seen a lot of in my clinical practice um, jealousy, not not in terms of romantic jealousy or sexual, but even with friendships. Mm -hmm. Some people can be very possessive about their friends. Mm -hmm. You know, their best friend can't speak with somebody else because they're their best friend. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so that's jealousy. It always involves a threat or an element coming from a thought third source. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't have to be a, a person. It could even be, let's say... Um, Let's say a non-object or a non-person. Let's say your 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 partner or your best friend or whoever is um, spending more time at work. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's a good example. Spending more time at work, so work becomes the third. Yeah. Okay. And envy always involves this. So this is what we're going to talk about with Baruka. She she wants something. So it's all, the relationship is between her and one other thing, which is what she wants. There's nobody else in this formula or equation, not that we know of anyway. Um, so Baruka wants this something, and she and let's say some let's say she wants something that somebody else has, but she wants to have she wants to have this toy, let's say, or a Barbie doll or something. She if her envy if she was like you know if she had had a lot of unhealthy parenting and if she had a lot of trauma or abuse, I would suspect she would grow up, grow up as an adult to have quite malicious envy. And so malicious envy we see in lots of different problems, but usually in um, in pathological narcissism, mm -hmm. where you would want to actually spoil the thing that the person has. Mm -hmm. Now, listeners out there, I'm sure that you've like watched uh, I don't know watch programs or TV series where um, have you ever come across Fatima where you've seen like a, mo a mother? This is just a one mm -hmm. example that comes to mind. There's a female, a mum, sorry, not a mum, but a female who wants to have a child and she's not getting pregnant or she's coming across difficulties. And we've, we've seen stories, there are myths out there, fairy tales, where somebody else, it doesn't have to be someone who she knows, mm -hmm. but it could be someone who she knows, but someone else has a baby and she will snatch the baby. Or mm -hmm. I'm, I'm talking about very extreme cases. I'm thinking of, what is that, Rumpelstiltskin one? Oh. Yeah, where she does steal the child from the cradle. Yeah, the, the, I think she pricks her finger. Yeah, yeah, there's something, I don't remember. Mm. Um, or was it Snow White? I don't think Snow White was snatched. Was no, she? no, it was, I think yeah. it was Rumpelstiltskin, yeah. you know, where she was snatched. Absolutely, that's mm -hmm. a, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
so in such examples like that in literature we see how the the, the longing the desire becomes so painful mm. that that one has to alleviate that psychological pain through action mm. and that action's got to be i've got to take this object or the mm. person or whatever for myself and if i don't i just can't carry on like this mm. whereas more healthy envy is okay you know you admire or you say mm. i really want that mm. well not admire mm. uh, admire is where because admiration and envy are actually cousins mm. i think they're quite linked mm. but it's how you moderate that admiration do mm. you inflate it mm. or do you just keep it in check mm. and like yeah this person we all have done it we've mm. all had famous people mentors mm. that we admire yeah. but w- but but be careful because when you inflate that admiration mm. and put that person on a pedestal mm. you will start to devalue them mm. and you'll envy them and you'll mm. hate them you know it's it, so it's it's about le- i think in this life mm. and i'm learning to do this too i'm mm. i'm human as well we're all human is how do you learn to admire but not envy mm. how do you learn to follow but not imitate mm. how can you follow your mentors and your guides mm. but not need to copy them or imitate yeah. them and yeah that makes sense i think that's an ongoing challenge for um for the remainder of our lives in lots of ways um so you were saying that she there's something about envy with veruca salt um and that connects to uh longing and impulse impulsivity or impulse control mm-hmm. um but also how longing and desire are very normal part of um human existence it's just that when it it spills over or it's uncontained or if it's been modeled in a particular way or not checked in time mm-hmm. uh that can be damaging talking about um envy and how that connects to longing and desire and i think one of the things that i i know you're also saying and maybe we should just say again is that longing and desire are very normal part of human existence mm-hmm. and it's only when they're uh when they spill over or uncontained or not checked uh that's when it becomes problematic indeed yeah and and also can i may i just add um you know with 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 wanting everything as well mm-hmm. there's no sense of discrimination because mm-hmm. so you know it's like it's so it's almost like i would be worried about veruca's sense of commitment <laughs> <laughs> yeah because if if you want everything and everything mm-hmm. and anything mm-hmm. i mean of course she's a child i mean you can't you know chill children don't have much impulse control mm-hmm. you know they don't uh, of course they don't and that's okay it's about how it's managed so yes she can have certain things maybe parents can put certain limits mm-hmm. and maybe give her some pocket money where she can you know this is what my advice to Mr and Mrs Veruca would be <laughs> but there's no sense of selection like if you really want something mm-hmm. do you just want one thing can you discriminate others mm-hmm. to choose one thing because when in adult life mm-hmm. we we can't enter into adult life with this attitude that Veruca unfortunately is developing right mm-hmm. it's not fixed yet mm-hmm. but it is becoming fixed 
right? So it's like if she enters ad the adult world with this sense and this approach that she can just have everything she likes, mm -hmm. then she's going to enter into her romantic relationships with this very idea that, oh, I'm entitled to every single man on the <laughs> planet, or, you know, and she's she might just wither away with without having this sense of loyalty or this sense of being able to select a partner. Mm -hmm. or And it's not just even her love life. What about her career? Mm -hmm. What about her profession? Because... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are important questions and I just want to build on something you said about impulse control, Dr. Farah, I was thinking about this. Um, have you heard of the game Wordle? No. Okay. Intrigue so, <laughs> me. So it's been something that's been, that's taken over like, um, kind of, everybody's talking about it, it's on Twitter, it's on Facebook, it's uh -huh. on, um, so what, what it is essentially is a Scrabble type game where you get six attempts to figure out a five letter word, right? So as you, so you get six, uh, six attempts and uh, when you put in alphabets, you will, it'll either, the tile will either stay gray, which means that in the final word, this, there's no, this alphabet is not used. It'll either be green, which means that it's in this place in the same um, position. So if it's the third alphabet or the fourth alphabet, so it'll be green. But if the tile is yellow, it means that it's somewhere in the word, but the position is different, right? So you get six attempts to do that, and by the sixth attempt, you have to figure out the word, if you can. That's the, that's the challenge. And um, so that's something that's really, especially with the new lockdowns and everything, it's become really popular. And the story behind this is that it was uh, created by a man for his girlfriend who really liked to do, do uh, you know, crosswords oh. and Scrabble and stuff. Mm -hmm. So he, he programmed that and he made it available for everything. New York Times mm -hmm. just bought it, which means it's probably going to go behind a paywall now, but for now oh. it's free. Mm -hmm. But the, the reason that it made me think of impulse control is that you can only do it once in 24 hours. At 12 o'clock it resets and you only get that, you know, those six attempts at it, so one, one big attempt. Oh. So it's not like other games where you can keep trying, mm -hmm. keep trying, keep trying to get it. And people are hooked because I think for the for the very first time in a really long time, we've had to contain our impulse in a way that we've not had to in mm -hmm. many, you know, different uh, areas of our life. So I was thinking of like Netflix and HBO and streaming services, which are very different from how TV was when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. So a show would come on TV at a particular time, mm -hmm. you saw it or you missed it. Mm -hmm. you, di you didn't have the kind of choice and... Uh, so gratification is very delayed uh, in a way that it's not anymore. Absolutely. I mean, there was, you know, even even like when the first Sky or Cable Box mm. came out, mm. um, there was the, the, the luxury of having to record so you could watch it later. Mm -hmm. But you're, 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 you're so right. We had to wait. And it, and it was tough. Mm. It was tough if we missed it. Yeah. And same with songs. Like, you know, they'd come on the radio. But now you have Spotify, so you can listen to any song you want at any time. Um and so all of, and food that's that's another thing that mm -hmm. connects to what um, we were talking about earlier of mm -hmm. course this is not as recent as these other things but we're no longer hunting and gathering for survival right like things are available at the grocery store or you can order them through your phone or it's everything's very accessible so gratification is very instant mm -hmm. um, and I think perhaps a, a larger shift where to a way of life where gratification is delayed in mm. some ways. Not saying we go back to hunting and gathering because I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> but it was it, the wordle thing really kind of put into perspective for me how little 
we, we need to control our impulses anymore in so many ways, right? So in, in terms of pleasure, mm-hmm. particularly entertainment, food, uh, music, um, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe not in relational ways so much, but these things that are gratifying or meant to be mm-hmm. at least are just so accessible. This is so interesting because, you know, as I'm sitting with this, hearing you and what's come up in my mind, I'm thinking of uh, our ancestors and the previous generations in the world wars, the big two wars that we had. And I'm thinking that you're talking about non-relational things, right? Like food and, and, you know, the the word old game and other things that we can access. so instantly and uh, and back back um, you know years ago there was a sense of delayed gratification relationally because you see it's almost like we've we've turned a table almost it's a bit like now mm. now we've got um, you know everything accessible mm. we've got relational accessibility as well because of digital technology mm. even through covid and the isolation we could video call family and friends and i'm kind of really sitting with a degree of sadness for the people in in the wars even or in the pandemic uh, previous pandemics in our lifetime all the mm. calamities of the world that we our ancestors have suffered they didn't have that emotional relational support uh, to be able to video call their family children friends you know, they were isolated for long periods of time, not knowing if some if, if a loved one was dead or alive. Or, and, and this idea that, you know, when you mentioned about relational gratification, um, and, and so they, they had to, they had to wait. Mm-hmm. They, and I think that that sense of wait, the sense of waiting mm-hmm. has, has an eternal quality to it, which I don't think, I think many of us now, um, in he, our humanity now struggles so much with that feeling of waiting. It, it has an eternal quality to it. Mm-hmm. It's just a different dimension. It is. It is absolutely. And even in very like um, small ways that change our life, right? So, for example, fruit and vegetable being accessible only a certain time of the year, meaning that you have to wait. Say the only thing I think we do that for anymore is mangoes. The Pakistanis at least, right? <laughs> Because everything else is now available at the supermarket mm. uh, all year round. Um, and there, there's something about, and in travel, for example, getting on a train is very different from getting on a plane. Um, and sure, one way to look at it is, yes, our lives have become a lot more fast-paced, but it's also, you're right, this, the delay means kind of sitting with the not having to, uh, sit, sitting with the not knowing and the not having. And that has a very different quality. Um, and, and in terms of, our overall experience of the world that feels very different mm. yeah and there's something that like you're saying about seasonal i'm thinking of the seasonal vegetables mm. and fruits that mm. you've mentioned mm. because of and with the with the mangoes mm. because they're so famous yeah. they're the most delicious in my opinion <laughs> i hate them i've not had one in 10 years i'm horrified <laughs> far from you hate pakistani mangoes yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness Yep, not my cup of tea. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's okay. <laughs> but yeah, you know, like what, what, whatever your favorite, you mm. must have some favorite, se- mm. you know, seasonal vegetable or something. Mm. But whatever one's favorite is, mm. it's like you know that okay, in August, September, it's mm. gonna come, and I'll be able to. It kind of gives you something to look forward to. You work your. It's a bit like you know when they say with food, you have to work an appetite. Mm. You've got to 
work your appetite otherwise for me personally only after I've done some work or chore I never allow myself even if it's like an episode from a series and I'll even then I'll limit myself like it's so easy to binge watch a whole series um, or a season but I will actually write it on a post-it note one season today and after I've done it I tick tick it off the list and that's me done that's my pleasure and and there's something the word that comes to my mind is how that allows us to savor that a little bit more. So the the pleasure you might get from binge watching a whole season might be very less compared to what you might be able to offer yourself by spreading it out over a week. Um, so yeah, there's something about not, about not instant gratification, meaning greater pleasure also, in my opinion. Mm, I agree. Don't know if there's any research to support that, but that's just, that's what my... Uh, thought is there probably is I think if listeners out there want to do their own research they can but there will probably will be some research but but probably more in terms of the Buddhist school of thought Mm. and yeah so just as our last section today um, we'd like to talk about Willy Wonka and the Oompa Loompas which feature in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and in the episode that we're going to put out next, which is Charlie and the Great Class Elevator, which is a sequel to this book. So we didn't, uh, you might have noticed that we didn't say a lot about Willy Wonka or the Oompa Loompas, which are a very big part of the story in this episode. And that's because we're saving them for our next episode. And I thought we'd ask our listeners, because Willy Wonka is such a part of well, public consciousness in a way for many years and many decades and for many children, with first the first movie and then the second Tim Burton movie and also the books that have been a part of our lives. Um, what do you guys think of Willy Wonka? And what comes up for you when you think of him? What are the words that you would use to describe him? Do write to us and let us know what Willy Wonka makes you feel uh, and what you think of him. So um, we thought we'd take a couple of minutes just to give our thoughts on Willy Wonka um, and just you know rudimentary thoughts for now so Dr. Farah is there anything that stood out for you as you read the book and I know it's difficult to kind of separate Willy, book Willy Wonka mm. from the movie Willy Wonka mm. but what came up for you when you thought when you read about Willy Wonka at the end? Well as I'm very um, sort of uh, passionate about astrology mm. uh, and, I, and like psychological astrology as well I, I instantly kind of pictured him as being somebody of the Gemini sign mm. because he has um, a lot of mercurial kind of traits and some of our listeners out there, if you're Gemini, you know, you might be I'm sorry to... for you if you are. <laughs> <laughs> but I just thought of the Gemini trait being, you know, he's quite sort of airy and he's, he's not, I, I wouldn't say he's particularly... Um, Flaky. He's not flaky. He's not flaky, no. He doesn't come across as being like a flaky, sort of uh, slippery character. Not in that sense. Um, he's quite likeable to me, but there is something about him having mercurial kind of like... Um, because he's an entertainer. If you think about the way he presents himself, not like a clown clown, but he does entertain. He's, he's, he's hosting the children. He's showing... Um, some spectacular kind of things so I think I'll leave our listeners with that I think he's quite Gemini-ish and even if he's not Gemini by star sign I think he'll have a lot of air in his natal chart mm-hmm. that's, that's interesting Dr. Farah I, so I 
what I thought was that um, he's quite an eccentric character, right? Like he's got these um, absurd things that he does, these idiosyncrasies. Is that that's the word, right? Idiosyncrasies mm-hmm. um, that make him very different, and he he dresses a particular way, and he's very theatrical. Um, so he he definitely has a particular quality to him, but I do think underneath that is is something more uh, painful that that lurks underneath that. And one of the words that I was thinking of as I read it was betrayal trauma, because we do find out earlier in the story that um, the reason that he shut the factory um, down and the reason that he stopped have, uh, hiring workers to work for him in the factory was because his previous uh, employees had been trying to steal trade secrets for him and pass them on to other chocolate manufacturers. Mm. So he had been betrayed by people who were working in his factory. And yes, he came out from that bigger and stronger and better, but there's the mistrust that that might have created. Um, and yeah, so, so that's something perhaps we can wonder about next time. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and maybe on that note, we can say a little bit about Oompa Loompas. Um, any, any th- you know, rudimentary thoughts on that, Dr. Fala? Well, first thing, uh, just as a primer to, to our next episode, is that uh, it reminded me of the slave trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us more. Um, the way that sort of Willy Wonka kind of... Um, <coughs> I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this next time, but the way he kind of goes goes and gets them from their land mm. and offers them a deal, I think. He mm. offers them some sort of bargaining mm. or negotiation. Mm. Um, and he promises them, uh, I think, for, for eternity, yeah. his chocolates and yeah. candies. Yeah, and uh, I particularly thought of um, uh, slave trade and sugar plantations mm. um, <laughs> because of you know, the, the link between sugar and, mm. and chocolate and stuff. and very much importing colonies of people and just making them work um, on something that you are going to then sell for a much higher price with no uh, work that you've put in yourself. And, and it's kind of uprooting the colonies, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a migration. Mm-hmm. They're having to uproot their home and move. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and an erasure of their identity also in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something we can talk more about next time. The only other thing that stands out for me with the Oompa Loompas is that they're, uh, they sing a lot. And they have these really <laughs> interesting songs and very like mean sometimes mm. um, and bold and uh, hard-hitting. But so very blunt. Very blunt. Uh, it's a bit like, you know, the truth is, is bitter. Like yeah. it's a hard truth, isn't it? But they say it. They're yeah. very honest. They do say it. And, um, and and maybe we can talk a little bit more about their song in the next episode. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of our series on the Pakistani couch. We really hope that you found our episode to be meaningful and instructive. We hope you'll feel able to write in to us, either with your dreams for psychological interpretations and alongside that any symbolic insights that we might have about your dreams. Your dreams will be anonymised and any personal details won't be shared. 
We also hope you'll be able to give us any feedback that you might have to further improve our series and any questions or comments that you want to share with us. We're very responsive, so when you do reach out, you'll receive a reply within 24 to 48 hours. There are two main ways that you can write into us. The first is to email us on the Pakistani couch at gmail.com and you might also wish to send us a tweet at on the pack couch. Until next time, take good care of yourselves.